All right, new covenant love, freedom and the power of the Spirit. So in thinking through the grand story of God making us His habitation, uh, I wanted to talk about, well, the new covenant. And Jesus established the new covenant with us at the Last Supper. So this is Matthew's treatment of the Last Supper. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So, this poured out language, this blood is being poured out, is significant. And the blood is being shed, it's being poured out. But this is the blood of the covenant. That's the language that Matthew uses. And it's, it's the same verbiage, if you will, that Mark refers to. He speaks of the blood of the covenant. Luke employs this language. Uh, Luke 22, verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Luke incorporates the new covenant language. This is the new covenant which is poured out for you in my blood. Paul refers to this language in his letter to the Corinthians, the New Covenant. It's almost a direct quotation out of Luke, which makes sense because, well, Luke's the one, but never mind. <laughs> Luke and Paul spent a lot of time together. It wouldn't be surprising that you see the same kind of uh, verbiage showing up from Paul's pen and from Luke's pen. It's still, it's still the Holy Spirit. Right, it's still the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. There's no denying that. So, you see that language in 1 Corinthians 11.25. So, we've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke covered. And we've got the Apostle Paul covered. Whose testimony is missing? John. John's testimony is missing. Which is why the other three are called the Synoptic Gospels, because they seem to cover the same ground from different angles. Paul just, co- I mean, John just covers the ground from almost a, a, a different viewfinder, it seems. Because do you remember the scene of the Last Supper in John? There's no reference to the bread or the wine or the New Covenant. John 13 is about foot washing. I just thought that was interesting, that contrast. John 13 and verse 1, Now therefore before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about Jesus speaking of shedding His blood for the New Covenant. John talks about Jesus' commitment 
to love his disciples. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Verse 2, during supper, now when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, not only does he not, not only does he know who he is and where he's going, he knows he's being betrayed. What's your general reaction when some friend betrays you? You're heartbroken. Yeah, for sure. You're heartbroken. You know, imagine the scene. You're at a party, and all your friends are together, and you know one of them's a snake in the grass that has already stabbed you in the back, and it's going to get worse. What's your reaction at the party? Mm. Leave. You know, we yeah, we avoid, right? That's what I do. Yeah, try to get it, you know, or, or we tend to close off. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So just, just think about the different narratives uh, of, of the Gospels, how he tells the disciples, hey, Passover's coming, I want to have this meal with you. I mean, the whole miraculous thing about going to someone's house and getting the donkey and getting the room set up, and I'll have it all for you, and we're going to sit down and have this entire, I mean, very directive, very lordly, right? <laughs> this is Jesus setting it up. They have this meal they have all this talk. John's laying on him. Jesus is telling them, hey, one of you is going to betray me. No one knows who it is. And even when Jesus gives them the sign, catch that, you know, the one who I dip this bread and hand it to, he's the one, gives them a direct sign, present tense, of what's going to happen. Nobody gets it. They miss it entirely. We're used to prophecy in 2020 hindsight. Yeah. We're used to it, you know, being very clear. Well, if I'd been there, you know, I mean, we read it in Scripture, and thus it was fulfilled, so the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. So, And then when we see that He has to open their minds to understand that the Christ had to suffer, die, and resurrect, we're like, these guys must have been, He must have found the dumbest fisherman on the coast of Galilee possible, like, trade school, you know? I, I mean... <laughs> Not this in trade school, but you know the stereotypes, right? Yeah. No. Short bus. It's, it's because he does things in a way because he is actively involved in moving history through redemption's end point. He does things in a way that causes us to look back at it and go, wow, now I see it. But generally, while we're going through it, we don't catch it yeah. at all. We don't get it. wouldn't have seen it either. Yeah, yeah. And, and this one just always baffles me because they ask him point blank, is it me? Is it me? He says, no. The guy I dipped the bread and handed it to, that's him. And they don't, and they don't get it. You know? Hey, I wonder how many guys he dipped the bread and handed it off to. <laughs> you mean the guy before, the guy right now, the guy after? Do you mean pre-bread, post-bread, or mid-bread? What are you talking about? Right? Stop, <laughs> you know? Stop. I mean, <laughs> what's happening here? But look at his entire comportment. So frequently, 
Our service is driven by need for approval. Our, our service is driven by, well, if I, if I make myself useful, they'll keep me around. They'll appreciate me. They'll love me back. Jesus was in love. Not in the common, uh, uh, ordinary sense of the word. You get it, right? He had been, John is telling us that he knew his hour was come to leave this world. That's a very fancy, nice way of saying he knew he was going to die. He was completely and utterly selfless yes. in his actions. Absolutely. He, he moved, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And, and so his, his actions aren't directed by response. He already knows that Judas has let Satan into his heart. Now, if that doesn't play with your theology of demonization, I don't know what will. This is not a demonic spirit. This is not some principality or, um, you know, some run-of-the-mill fallen angel. This is Satan starting to run the controls inside of Judas himself. And perhaps maybe that has you find a little bit of mercy for Judas. Now, he let him in. But even so, I've known people who are just tangling with a little demon. Can't seem to shake them all their life. In the face of all this, his response is to take the lowliest function and to wash his disciples' feet. And so in the other Gospels, what we have recorded is that this is the blood of the new covenant. In this gospel, at this supper, what we have recorded is, is the testimony of Jesus' love and that he loved them to the end. In verse 12, when he had washed their feet, remember he has that little argument with Peter, and Peter's like, well, no, my back too. And Jesus is like, no, no, it's okay, it's okay, just the feet, we're good, we're good, Peter. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. Resumed his place. So he had no problem ministering low and being back in his place. Sometimes people are afraid to minister low because of pride. You know, well, well, if people see me doing that, then... Do you understand what I've done to you? Yeah, he washed my feet. I... We are so, so, so blessed to have a God that is a God of love. You know, what if, what if he was not like that? What if he yeah. was, you know... An angry God, and it's mind-boggling that God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that 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 you know they aren't antagonistic towards mankind when mankind turns against them. I mean, it, it it's it's incredible. So that, that that's a great segue from from me being able to share some bits out of my new favorite book. <laughs> This, this book is uh, Who God Is, Meditations on the Character of God by Ben Witherington III. Don't let the size of the book fool you. Ben Witherington is uh, highly published, over, over 40 works. Anyhow, so uh, it is a blessing to have a God of love. Yeah. 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 And 
But Scripture goes farther than that and says, God is love. So, I just want to read some out of the prologue. This is out of the prologue of the book. And Witherington writes, Something has bothered me for a long time. I'm referring to the fact that even devout Christians seem to place far more emphasis on the adjectives applied to God in the Bible than on the nouns. This is not to say that the adjectives are not vitally important. God is almighty. God is righteous. God is holy. God is merciful. God is compassionate and so on. But frankly, nouns are more important than adjectives when it comes to the character of any sentient being, whether we're talking about God or angels or human beings. That God is love is telling us something very different than saying we have a loving God. I chew on that for a minute. <laughs> and love, as a noun, is a central marker of His character. And Jesus, having loved those of His that were in the world and loving them to the end, left His place at the table, divested Himself, and washed their feet. And he says, do you understand what I've done to you? To the end, but there, there is no end. There is no end. <laughs> Amen. Amen. At the end of the age, I think, is what yeah. talking about. You, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so now I'm going to go on a little bunny hop in terms of contextualizing Scripture. Just a small one. Contextualizing Scripture. In this context, the streets they were walking on weren't that clean. And the feet they had weren't that clean. And those whose responsibility it was to wash feet weren't that high. Okay? They were actually the lowest. Yes. So, many, I've never been a part of this, but there are, there are churches who do foot-washing ceremonies. Sometimes uh, in the establishment of a new leader of the church, the new leader of that church will wash the feet of the elders of that church as a sign of humility. But note the difference between a symbolic act. This is taking something that Jesus has said, now let's literalize it into a ceremony. Well, Jesus said we should wash one another's feet. So, I'll fulfill the letter of the law by washing your feet. Whether or not that's something we even do in our culture, whether or not it has any kind of implications or application in our culture, we'll make a ceremony out of it, some liturgical practice, and it might affect our heart. I mean, it'll speak to us to a certain degree, but will it speak to you to the same degree as if maybe you went out and mucked somebody else's pen? Or did the acts of service that were necessary for your brothers and sisters in Christ to make sure that they were okay. And which has the greater interpretive life meaning. 
Is Jesus asking us to um, buy little cups of grape juice and little wafers and do a ceremony? Uh, analogous? So now we're going to have the sacrament of foot washing. Are you following me? Yes. We're going to have the sacrament of foot washing. Are we going to have a heart that says, regardless of what function and position I'm in in life, that I will be a servant to those about me? In the synoptics, we have the covenant and the new covenant. In John, we have this... <coughs> Example of love given to the disciples that the disciples should show for each other. This is what the Lord says He's done. If I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you, truly I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, neither Jesus nor the apostles nor the evangelists. <laughs> so, you know, if you want to cover anyone who, who wound up in the New Testament canon, who do we have? We've got Matthew, he's an apostle. Mark, he's not an apostle. Luke, he's not an apostle. John's an apostle. Acts is by Luke. So Luke and Acts is over a third of the, of the New Testament. Then you have Paul, he's not one of the original twelve. Definitely an apostle. Okay. James and Jude. James, the brother of Jesus, was an apostle, but not one of the twelve. Jude, I don't think, was. Peter was. Who am I leaving out? I already covered John. Right? None of those guys were innovators. In the sense of what they were communicating about God's plan of redemption. They didn't invent things. So for instance, when Jesus sat down to supper and he said new covenant, it wasn't something that they hadn't heard before. It wasn't something without a reference point. When he said, when the wisdom of God says, I will send them prophets and apostles... That, remember that, that scene in the Gospels where, where you know, they said, well, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. And, and Jesus says, well then, the wisdom of God says, I'll send them. He, he wasn't inventing Scripture. Okay? That's what I'm saying is, is that there is a reference point, and Jesus had a clear reference point because God had clearly communicated what the nature of the new covenant would be. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So this is the covenant he made with them at the Exodus. It says he led them by the hand. Now, Hosea 11 has this has this interplay between what Withering calls Withering calls these these mutually reinforcing characteristics of God. The, the character of God is not at cross purposes. God's God's God being love 
is not at cross purposes with God being righteous or God being holy or God being just. One reinforces the other. And Hosea 11 verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went astray, they went away. So this is Hosea the prophet. He's writing under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And God is saying, I called my son out of Egypt. I loved him. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. I called them and they kept running off on me. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. So here, you know, Ephraim, you know, God is helping Ephraim up, making sure he's okay, and there's no recognition of the fact that it's God's graciousness by which they're being healed. I led them with cords of kindness and bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their, uh, on their jaws and bent down to them and fed them. This is God's response to a people who He sets free from, from slavery who decide to worship false idols. This is, this is bizarre behavior <laughs> from a human standpoint. You know, if, if God called Dr. Laura... When they could see their cross. Yeah. A cloud by day and a fire by, fire by night. night. And they do all that. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can see it now on a, on a you know, God calls Dr. Laura, hey, Dr. Laura, I got a problem. Uh, I got these kids, and I, yeah, I paid for everything for them. You know, they were in jail. I paid their, you know, I, I paid their bail. I got them set up in their own house, gave them a job. They were sick. I paid their medical bills. And they just, they won't talk to me. They keep running off. They're talking bad about me. And, and all your online good psychologists will say, cut them loose. They, you're done. <laughs> you know? You don't need that abuse. Cut them loose. They're not for you. Move on with life. I thought you were talking about me. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I am. <laughs> um, I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. So, now, here's this love God has, and yet God's still just, and God still executes judgment, right? So, no, they're not going back to Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they've refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, though they call out though they call out to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. Well, that sounds different than what we just read, but it's not. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? Anybody know what Adma and Zeboim are? No. Okay, so here's a here's a great key when you're studying your Bible or you're reading your Bible. If you read place names and you're not familiar with them, Look them up. What? <laughs> Whoa! Whoa! Newsflash! Which is exactly what I had to do. And these are these are both cities that were also brimstoned underneath Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, really? In the same, you know. And so, so here you see here you see 
this back and forth with God Himself saying, how, how, I can't turn you into, I can't do to you what I did to Sodom and Gomorrah. I can't, I can't make you like Adma and Zeboim. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So this is just a taste of a continual testimony in Scripture of God telling His people what He told them in the covenant. Look, if you stay in faithful relationship with me and in covenant with me, all is good. If you refuse me, then the Lamb will kick you out. And so he, he kept going to Israel, kept going to Israel, and Israel just, you know. And so the Assyrians came in, and they scattered Israel to the four winds, and they were dispersed. I watched Net, Netanyahu talking to Jordan Peterson on a YouTube today, and that dispersion is still um, very much alive to this day. Even with the Israeli state. You know, it just, it, and his whole two-minute or four-minute exposition of, of uh, Israel's history, what came up repeatedly in Netanyahu's talk was diaspora, diaspora, diaspora. Why? Because it occurred, because it happened. And what is supposed to transpire, part of the messianic end times of Messiah coming, is the end of Israel's dispossession. Israel coming into the land. That this new covenant where they have been dispossessed and scattered, that they're all brought in, that they're gathered. Remember Jesus said to them, you know, he was with me. He gathers, he doesn't scatter. To gather all the, their sheep without a shepherd, you know, gather them up. This is the whole thing. Bring them in. Well, how does he do it? Well, I led them with bands of love. Cords of kindness. That's how God works. So, following on to this new, new uh, this, this covenant he made with them in Egypt, I've had a tendency most of my life to think of the law as harsh. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and there's death penalty for every breach. Remember, after the law was instituted, they, they started worshiping a false god. What happened? A bunch of people got killed. <laughs> right? Some... some uh, some Egyptian kid goes out and gathers sticks on a, on a Saturday, right? On the Sabbath. And what happens? They, they, they they, to, yeah. Stone them, you know? And so that seems really, really wrong. Pretty harsh, right? Yeah. Yeah. But how does this law start out? You know, after all the pomp and circumstance of God coming down on the holy mountain, all the blaring horns and the angels and the earthquake and the fire and the smoke and everything else and God speaking from the mountain... What does God speak in the Decalogue? He says, verse 2 of Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am Yahweh Elohim. I'm the one who got you out of here. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Let's get this straight. I'm the one that got you out. I'm the one you worship. Nobody else takes my place. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourselves carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or the waters that are under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And I've, I've thrown in the ESV alternative reading in there, basically, to the thousandth generation. So here's what the Lord is saying in giving out of this law, that I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. I know I have taught, and I know you have heard, that this is part of the justification of what we call ancestral curses. You know, the sins of the fathers. That, you know, the father sins and then we get saddled with those kinds of problems. But there's a problem with that interpretation because out of Ezekiel, that kind of activity is strictly forgiven, for, forbidden by God. You cannot punish a child for a father's sins. This is part of what in our own constitution, we were covering with um, no cruel and unusual punishment. In the old English system, there was a belief of bad blood. So if, if you had someone who was heinous or treasonous, you not only killed him, you killed his family. So the founder said, no, 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 no. No, you don't get to do that. You just get to get the guilty party. So what, is he, what are we talking about here? We're talking about the consequence of a sin inside of a culture that begins bearing children at childbearing age, you know, 14, 15, 16. Remember, uh, Jacob and Esau lived in, uh, lived in tents with Isaac and Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You got three generations right there. So any kind of behavior exhibited by great-grandpa that the great-grandkids are aware of can have an influence or impact. If tribes aren't getting along and someone's done something heinous and the tribe attacks, guess what? These generations are still in the flow of that consequence. And yet God says, I show love to the thousandth generation. What we like to call, see that's a way, that's a Hebraic way of saying the nth degree. You know, it's not this, oh, oh sorry, your, your generation thousand one. You, you get to get smacked now because my love's done. You know, it's like, yeah. Right? So, so the covenant from the mountain starts with, I'm a loving God. I'm a just God. And I show steadfast love to the thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the covenant that he was making with them when he led them, out of the, led them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. But Jeremiah says, I'm going to make a new covenant. We're going to make a new covenant. Not like that covenant. I'm making a new covenant. Verse 33, Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, 
from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And so in, in a direct uh, allusion to the Exodus and the Mount Sinai experience, he's saying, I'm going to write this law on their heart. I'm not carving something in stone. This new covenant is going to be written in your heart and you're going to know me and you're going to be forgiven and you're going to be cleaned. Ezekiel mirrors this language. Ezekiel 11, verse 14. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem had said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for possession. So you understand, Ezekiel is ministering in Babylon to, to, to the captives of Judah. So the last two tribes that came out of the land. And these people in Judah, now some of them are in Babylon, and there's still people in Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem are like, well, yeah, the northern kingdom, Israel, well, we're okay. We, we got the temple, we got Jerusalem, we're, you know... God gave us this land. You guys just go play with the Assyrians. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, though I remove them far off among the nations. We're talking about the house of Israel, the northern kingdom. And though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. So even though the ten tribes were dispersed, and even though they were scattered to the four winds, God continued to watch over them. And, and cause there to be shelter for them. Why? Because God's character doesn't change. They're not lost. They're not lost. Not to Him. Right? That's right. Verse 17, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they... When they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Remember when Paul wrote the Corinthians? He said, you are epistles written not on stone, but in the fleshly tables of the heart. He's, he's coming right up into this it's not novel. He's, he's coming right out of, out of Ezekiel. He's coming right out of the Old Testament. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now, we've all had experience with messianic congregations and messianic movement. And I have generally seen this as a point of consideration. Like, Huh. The real purpose of the Holy Spirit was to make me poor and compliant. So, so now I have the power to keep all the feasts, do all the Jewish stuff, right? When, when I think about walking in statutes, rules, and, and obeying them, I, you know, it, it, for me, it just puts my mind in this rules and regs place. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You know, well, on the third day we do this, and on the fifth day we do that, and tie our shoes in a certain way. And now we're righteous with God. Right? So the question, and they shall be my people and I'll be the God. The question I have is, well, how does the new covenant make us obedient to the old? It's not exactly a trick question, it's just a provocative one. 
Matthew 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? What's the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So, makes it really simple. <laughs> love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that is the foundation, root, curtain rod, whatever you want to call it, of the entire law. That's what it's about. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, the New Testament writers using the Greek and also using Greek and referring to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, for this love of God, decided to choose the agape word. Agape and forms of agape. Which was a not a particularly well-used word in Greek. Almost like an empty vessel, agape was. It's um, rather pedestrian. Not used frequently. No high meaning. But the translators of the Septuagint began using it in their description of God's love for man and filling it with the kinds of things that, well, God Almighty can do and does. And thus elevated this word that the New Testament writers use because the pagan writers, when the pagan writers talked about their God's love, their God's being loving, you know what word they used? You would eros. think it was eros. They would use eros. Yes. So, so you, you look at the contrast between the revelation of God and how he... Remember, words don't mean anything <laughs> by themselves. Context gives it meaning. And the word that they employ that now has been filled by the sovereign hand of God and communicating... The Hebrew Bible and to a Hellenic culture, this is God's involvement in the, in the whole spread of history to get the gospel across the world, right? They fill this word with this elevated meaning, and then the New Testament writers use that to describe God's love. Well, what is the penultimate example of God's love, of agape? Christ on the cross. Christ on the cross. God so loved the world. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it is the most clear, unequivocal example of love. If you really think about it, it's, just, it's mind-boggling. It is. It is. 
And that kind of love, the kind of love that our Father exhibits, that would wisely and victoriously pursue a people that continually rejects and betrays, but the kind of God that would wisely and victoriously pursue such a person and lead them with cords of kindness and bands of love is outside of the power of human agency. It's something that we can't pull off. The closest we can get is jumping on a hand grenade. Greater love has no man but to lay his life down for his friend. You know, in the pitch of battle, in the pitch of confrontation, you know what's difficult? Laying your life down for your friend in little bits through your whole life until you're dead. That's the hard part. Right? How does it come to us? By that Holy Spirit poured out. And this, this just ties all this covenant language, all these different, different um, sections of new covenant and covenant language in the Old Testament of there being a new heart of the new spirit being put in our heart, that we might be obedient. What is the command? Love God while your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, love your neighbor as yourself is the fulfillment of the whole law because love does no harm to his neighbor. So the do no harm part is the, is the non-negative side, if you will, and then the serving others is that proactive, positive part. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't do it when we had earned it. He didn't do it when we were ready for Him. He did it when it was ready. And at the right time. And He died for the ungodly. 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 1-7 For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So the very nature of God's character birthed in us by the Spirit is His own character. God is love. So I wanted to share this other insight from Witherington. He says, let me start by saying that to assert God is love is by no means the same as saying love is my God. In the first place, the word love in our effective culture unfortunately primarily refers to a feeling a desire or an activity, such as lovemaking. The sentence, God is love, in Scripture refers instead to the very character of God, which is not to deny that our God is often passionate about things. As A.J. Heschel used to say, the biblical God is a God of pathos. He is not the unmoved mover of all things. And, and here's the thing. This is the, in its core character as an action, love must be freely given and freely received. It cannot be coerced, and it cannot be predetermined, or else it is not love. Inherent in love is a measure of freedom. One can be wooed, one can be persuaded, one can be led to love, but one cannot be forced to love. Mm-hmm. And, and that God is love tells you of the character of God, that He is not uh, 
love being what it is, God loves because he decides to. Not because he can't help himself. It's an act of, and he is the creator. It's an act of moral free agency. He is the prime mover. The definer of what is. I am. And when he created us, he created us with that freedom. That freedom involves either accepting his love or not. Because if we don't have that choice, it's not love. It's not response. We can't be coerced to respond in love. Worship me or I, you know, I shoot you. Well, no, that doesn't work either. Right? If you say, okay, I'll love you, but you're, you don't really love Yeah, them. yeah, you know. Thank you hate them because it yeah. made you do something. It, it, intrinsic, intrinsic to love is freedom. This is, this is why it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. You know, don't use your freedom as an occasion for the flesh, but in love, serve one another. The freedom is to love and serve one another. So, the huge foundation of, I want to say, all spiritual gifting. Right? We, we, we want to be agents of God in a dying world. We want to employ and be good stewards of the manifold grace of God poured out in our lives through the Holy Spirit. The foundation of that is that God has placed His own love through our heart to enable us to do the kinds of things that after supper, when you know you're going to die, take your clothes off and wash somebody else's feet and not lose your place and acceptance in the family by doing so. Amen? I want to finish with this. 119th Psalm, verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And that's exactly what he did when he poured his spirit in us and recreated us in the image of his son. Amen? Amen. I've never heard that before.